Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, and others. I am Abhijit Ayer Mitra, and I am your host today for P Gurus. So, welcome to P Gurus. Please click like, share, subscribe. Uh, so, today we're here discussing. My guest today on the program is uh, Mr. Suhail Seth, the uh, world famous marketing guru. And our victim today is a gentleman called Sri Ayer, who normally takes great pleasure in making victims out of other people. But unfortunately, today he is going to be the victim of our roasting. Specifically, we're going to roast him about his uh, part, uh, uh, two parts of a three part series of books. Who painted my money red? Who painted my lust white? Or did I get that? Uh, I think I got the right. Just call Which it is the white fine. book and the red book. <laughs> the white book and the red book. That's it. Uh, uh, because we don't believe in black and white. We only believe in red and white. So that's uh, where it is. Ready to fight. So, so Sri, uh, for those of us who have not read the book, why don't you just summarize uh, without giving us any details what the red and the white book are about? Yes. So um, the white book is about the real reason the demonetization was done and also the ill effects of having a lot of fake currency floating around in the system, what kind of uh, side effects it leads to. And there is a plot there to assassinate the political leader, the prime minister of the country, and how the intelligence bureau thwarts it. And, and uh, whether they thwart it or not, we have to read the book to find out. And the other book, the Red Book is essentially uh, a fictional story about how, uh, you know, um, politicians came into cricket first and then how Bollywood was roped in and this whole saga of IPL and why the heck does IPL always have to be played in Dubai? What is the reason behind it? I was trying to get into the heads of some of these people to try and say, okay, maybe this is what it is. It has a very strong message though for people, especially for Sri Shakti. And I'm hoping that this message uh, gets carried through when people read the book. I hope that uh, answers your two questions. Yes. Now, Suhail, I am a complete financial ignoramus unlike you. So since these are essentially a kind of a new genre of financial thrillers in that sense, uh, why don't you tell me, because you know this place so much better, how much of it did you find was realistic in terms of the financial aspects and things like that? So I think, uh, as you rightly said, there's been a huge, in Sri's books, an intertwining of reality and fiction. And if I may use the phrase, these are two books where the fiction is real <laughs> or reality is no longer fiction. And let me explain why. Let's go step by step. Demonetization happened not because we wanted black money to be out. We also wanted the cleansing of our currency mechanism which was being polluted by powers that were using that currency to foment and to fund terror, to foment and fund drugs, and basically create mayhem in our country. A lot of people, when demonization happened on that November day, I think eight. it was the 8th November. November 8th, 2016. Yes. There you are. So I remember the date, November the 8th, when it happened. A lot of people said that, oh my God, this has been done to curb black money. Black money was used as a a moniker by the prime minister and rightly so because he didn't want to create 
a panic situation. So when Narendra Modi addressed the nation at 8 p.m. on November the 8th at two, on, in 2016, his opening remarks were that it is time for India to own its currency. Our currency was being owned in part because it was faked by powers that did not belong to the sovereign realm of India, and it had moved beyond the borders of India. Did it achieve its objectives? I think it did. Because for a large part of time post that, we did not see that level of funding. It was also meant to be a political cleanser. The cynics said that it happened just before the UP election, that it was meant to uh, starve the oxygen out of the funds of political parties and that the BJP had told its own carders and people that, look, we're going to do this. So if you have any of the old currency, make the change. But obviously that wasn't the case because it's not easy because what Modi wisely did was he linked it back to your bank. So you had to go to a bank or a post office or a savings account in order to replace the old with the new. If I recall right, and I was having lunch with Aditya Puri, who was then the CEO of HDFC Bank, and he says the suddenness is both alarming and pleasing. So I said, alarming, I understand why pleasing. He says pleasing because we now have enough time to actually isolate accounts which are dodgy. Because what had happened was when they printed the new currency, all the ATMs had to be recalibrated in order to fit the sizing of the new currency. Right. So to my mind, Sri's book, where it concerns demonetization and where it, you know, the white book, as it were, to my mind, is not only about India's very precarious position, qua its currency at that time, but it was also one of the most decisive steps that India took in its independent history. You know, a lot of people compared Modi to the Mughal emperors who changed the coinage and the currency, but, you know, those were, those were stupid arguments. The argument was economic and political, and that's where Sri underscores it brilliantly. Because, as you said, you, you know, you said financial, but I see it through the prism of both the economic and the political. The economic had a terrible effect on the political and vice versa. And it mm -hmm. took courage for the political then to cleanse the economic. So it was a political decision to introduce demonetization and demonetization thereby helped both cleanse India's political you know, environment, but more importantly, India's dangerous zone of where this money was being used to fund terror and drugs. Right. Now, in terms of stock markets, you know, there are specific stock brokers who make money even when the market crashes. And I think a lot of what she deals with is a lot to do with the loopholes, the cracks, and how criminals tend to sort of recalibrate themselves to make a profit even when things crash. So uh, what uh, happens in this case, Shri? Why don't you kind of explain it without giving too much of the plot away? Absolutely. See, the, the core basis for a functioning economy is trust in its currency. And that trust is implicit. Nobody thinks that every time they take out a rupee note, they start looking at it in light and to see if this is the real thing or if this is the this is a fake currency. In fact, the fake currency that was being put out by our hostile neighbors, I'm saying neighbors, okay, so you can get the hint of the other one, which is also doing this, is that the, the fake currency was so good that even banks were unable to detect the fake from the real, which is why 
not only did they have to change the denomination, uh, but they also had to change the size because that made it impossible for the existing hoard of a currency that was about to enter India. This was the payback or the retribution, if you will, of one of the neighbors for the Uri surgical strike. You see, see, I don't have proof. I don't have, I was not a fly on the wall in the inter-services intelligence or in the GHQ Rawalpindi to listen to all these guys do whatever they want to do to hit back. But I can put one plus one together and I'm coming up maybe with three, but that's okay. This is only a book of fiction. This is what I'm thinking. I'm connecting some, some dots and in that is a story. That's how this happened. So when currency, um, the confidence in currency returned, the confidence in the country returned. Because remember, every Western country lauded India for doing this. How many times have yeah. you seen that happen? Yeah. Uh, except know, everybody in Delhi who called it a Tughlaq, Tughlaqian move. Look, these uh, guys which will, is, yeah, yeah. They, 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 will, they don't even know. Anyway, these are they all ignoramuses. Yeah, go ahead, please. But Abhijit, you know this landscape the best. Let me give you an example of what happens with the U.S. currency. A lot of people said, oh, you know, almost 2.5 billion was left behind in Afghanistan and the total spend was 2 trillion, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. If you look at an average household in India, which is above the upper middle class and above, whenever people come back from overseas, they always have some savings in dollar form, $100, $200, $150. Let's take the average of it being $100. And let me say $100 is lying with 1 million people. And obviously with some people, it's $500. If you do the math, you're talking about India having non-circulated currency of 1 billion US dollars. This is not the one that's in the reserve bank. This is not right, Norway right. forest. Now look at what I'm about to say. The US is impervious. And none of this currency affects either inflationary patterns or their economic activity because it never finds its way back. It is what I call an emotional bulwark, an emotional anchor of a sovereign kind through currency. Now imagine how many US dollars rest in wallets across the world which are not in circulation in the home country, which is known as the United States of America. So the US doesn't even factor. It looks at that as printed currency, which will not come back to impact inflationary trends or any kind of economic activity in the US. But the US does it because its currency is what we call the indexed currency of the world. In India, we did not have and we will never have that level of stature. So it is even more imperative for us to guard sovereign wealth in an important aspect through acquire currency. And that's the essential difference. So I think, and you know, Sri is being too uh, uh, kind to himself, but I think what this book also does is it contextualizes India's economic compulsions with India's political compulsions almost at times forced where the hand is forced by powers that are not friendly to India or that are disruptive. In this case, I will say it, Pakistan. 
Uh, did uh, I, I don't know if you guys knew this. Uh, I'm sure you did. But uh, for our audience, the uh, ink provider for our currency was also the ink provider for Pakistan's currency. So uh, that was uh, one of those interesting little tidbits you can take away. But, uh, but you know who owns sh- that company? 80% of the world's printing ink is owned by a company which uh, is uh, is provided by a company which used to be owned by Nirmal Sethia, who now oh. is a Dubai resident from London. And Nirmal is an avowed nationalist. And Nirmal used to constantly tell me during the UPA era, he, he said that Chidambaram never listens to me. But there are issues with the way our currency is being printed at the various mints. And he's saying there are people who are forging the ink because they're providing ink based on tender rather than the best security ink. So there right. is another tale. <laughs> Amazing. So, you know, that brings us to the second part of this book, which is sort of the fungibility of, uh, you know, crime, uh, wherein, you know, any opportunity to uh, sort of fiddle around with currency invariably translates into criminality of possibly every single kind, leading, of course, up to terrorism, but drugs, everything in between, you have it. Because one criminal is not going to say to another criminal, say no to another criminal. prospective criminal enterprise enterprise, uh, if he's going to make a heck of a lot of money off of it. So why don't you explain to us, Sri, what are the different aspects of that fungibility of crime that you go into? See, um, one of the things I had noticed before I wrote the book, of course, was the fact that in the state of Kerala, the Hindus comprise about 50% of the population, but own only 17% of the industry and 17% of the real estate property. I mean, all else being the same. I mean, India was poor for everybody. It was poor for Christians, the Muslims, and the Hindus, the Parsis, the Sikhs, everybody. So how is it that one group enjoyed a phenomenal growth, whereas the others didn't? And, and that's explained, that's where the thing holds start feeling that, okay, so it looks like somebody's loyalty was bought. And it was bought using gobs of fake currency and gobs of enterprises which all exist only on paper remember modi actually came in and shut down like lakhs of shell companies lakhs of them right right so 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 why 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 did all that happen because these guys had found an easy way to basically take this loosely lying around currency legitimize it make it white and god knows what are all the things they were doing so i had to illustrate what are all the ways you can weaponize this fake currency? That's how I have all these small, small threads going here and there. And to make it easy for people to understand, I publish you know, the characters in the beginning so they can go back and, and, and read to find out who it is. And there's also a small game involved there where they try to match up the character with a real politician. Yeah, that that yeah. asks some gossip there. Go ahead. Of course, for libel reasons, she will never actually tell you who the real person is. But as Suhail indicated, it is fiction that is actually quite true. Now, talking about you know the fungibility of crime and cartels and bosses, we come to the second part of the book, uh, or rather book number two, uh, which is about book, yeah. you know, how one cartel protects its own interests. Like if you watch the uh, series Narcos, you see how the Kali cartel protects against the Medellin cartel and things like that. And this has to do with cricketing as a cartel in a sense and how you bring in glam and glitz and, uh, you know, uh, essentially what book one does with money laundering, this one does with a monopoly. So why don't you explain a bit more about that, Sri? Sure. See, um, uh, we all know that 20 years ago, 
uh, match fixing reared its ugly head when one of the captains admitted, and this is not an Indian captain, it was South African captain, Hansi Kronje. Hansi Kronje. Hansi Kronje. Right? So then, uh, then they said that, oh, we have cleansed everything, we are clean, no more match fixing. Was it true? So this, this is where this thing starts going back. And, and things were sort of okay, okay for some years. Then suddenly the T20 format suddenly took off in England. And before the BCCI could make up its mind, an entrepreneur came along and I said, I'm going to try. And because that person lost out on the, the broadcasting contract for cricket. And, and he thought the means that were used to decide the winner were not fair. Right? So that's where this whole story starts, that somebody comes up with a rival league, a rival format, and, and then suddenly these guys wake up to the possibilities of money that can be made. And in between these things, there is a World Cup championship, World Championship for T20, and India ends up winning that. And suddenly every mother in the house, usually cricket was a male preserve, you know, boys and uncles and, you know, grandfather, everybody sat in front of the TV and watched it. Women folk in the house typically did not look at it, but IPL changed all that. Why? Because they were actresses. So I had to explain why actresses had to be roped in. What, what is the rationale behind all this stuff? Because to me, IPL is the pinnacle of match fixing. If you can agree with me or you cannot agree with me, I don't, you know, I have no problem with that. Because these days, there are so many aspects of cricket that can be fixed and bet on. That, you know, it's very difficult for either way to prove, either side to prove that there is match fixing happening or no, there is no match fixing happening. No, but it was proven, it was proven two teams, one certainly was even banned. Yes, yes, yes. That was 2013. That is right. Sun Royals was banned. Raj Kundra was indicted. Yes. Mm. I mean, you know, he was named and whatever. So, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one thing from a marketing point of view, IPL was to replace all forms of family entertainment that is as correct. far as possible. Yes. Yes. And that's why they roped in Bollywood. They roped in industry in order to, you know, bankroll those teams because the teams were being paid way beyond their earning capacity in the initial years. But again, with due respect, you'll have missed the woods for the trees and I'll tell you why. IPL, the match fixing is not happening at the owner level now. It is certainly maybe happening at the bookie level and the bookies we have not been able to eradicate. The solution to that is to actually legalize gambling like the Ladbrokes of the world in, in the UK, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, right. The real issue is something else. A team that I must have bought or I could have bought for 150 crores, 200 crores is today valued at 3000 crores. If you look at the revised bidding for the two extra teams or the two new teams, the bids are in the region of about three to 4,000 crores. Why do people want to pay that kind of money? Three things. Number one, vanity, because then they rub shoulders. Number two, constant gaze of PR, because during the IPL, the owners, in addition to the players, are the only people who are allowed into the pit. Third is that you have a lot of heft, because cricket is the unifying religion of India. So if you marry valuation, with vanity, which gives you heft. It's a winning combination. And what he did was, Lalit Modi, he roped all this in. But the idea originally was Subhash Chandra's. Yes. But Subhash Chandra could not see eye to eye with BCCI. BCCI's head was Sharad Pawar, who was very fond of Lalit Modi. And Lalit Modi, for all his sins, is an eccentric genius. So Lalit Modi was able to 
bring everything you know model it on the on the basketball uh, uh, baseball, baseball commission yeah. uh, of the united states where his role model was peter uberroth who did the los angeles olympics 1984 and that's how the whole thing took off yeah and the yeah. politicians got involved because the politi- politicians were in any case controlling the cricket boards both at the state level and at the bcci level so it was the perfect storm it was a perfect <laughs> So yes. one question each now to Suhail and one to Shri. So like you explained it Suhail this is like you know how a BMW is actually worth only between 9 to 12 lakhs but for that blue and white badge you're paying an additional 60 70 lakhs that's the kind of fake valuation happening with these teams right now but that's a lot like the Japanese property bubble of the 80s. So first question to you when does that bubble burst and under what circumstances does that bubble burst? brilliant question so any valuation is only relevant if a transaction takes place a transaction takes place from one owner to the potentially new owner what these guys have done very cleverly is that none of the owners wants to sell why should they let me give you examples one by one rajasthan royals owned by manoj badale suresh chelaram suresh chelaram was lalit modi's is lalit modi's brother in law then raj kundra was a minor shareholder but he had to be evicted because of all these match fixing allegations blah blah royal challengers which vijay malya started was the perfect uh, uh, thing for a, a, a trademark extension because royal challenge as a liquor brand could not advertise but on ipl when you wore the t-shirt when you did all of that so that's royal challengers chennai super kings chennai super kings was brilliant because srinivasan was already ejected out of the board and he wanted his revenge and he got a team at less price than what most people would have done i mean the fact that he got the team itself was remarkable and he did a great job with it kolkata night riders was the bollywood component now look at everything mumbai because of mukesh and neeta's love for sport so now if you analyze everything this is what i was saying it's a heady concoction chennai has an industrialist Bangalore had an industrialist today Diageo is supporting the uh, the uh, the team Kolkata <coughs> had an actor Punjab had Neswadia industrialist Mohit Burman industrialist Preeti Zinta minority stake, stakeholder actress Rajasthan Royals Rajkundra at that time Shilpa Shetty's husband Manoj Badale the 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 UK boy Prince Charles's at that time he was the president of the of prince charles's princess trust hmm. i mean do you need to look any further it's a bloody win win <laughs> and at that time delhi dare devils was gmr which was in the infrastructure business now parth jindal and his father sachin of jsw own 50% of the team along with gmr right. now you tell me who would ever do this analysis for you for fear of libel no one but these are the realities that happened and absolutely. no one is grudging it because it was as i said the perfect storm absolutely so the follow on question to you shri from that analysis is uh you know because of these notional valuations those notional valuations can always be used as collateral for real money and things like that from banks right. which in turn you know feeds into a lot of the bollywood bombay police underworld nexus 
So how much of this are you actually seeing getting laundered, going through and essentially fueling a kind of vicious cycle? Um, I wouldn't say that the money is coming back to India, especially when it's played in Dubai, right? It's all happening from one tax haven to another tax haven. Somebody pays something, somebody gets something. I believe the big money, okay, the India, India level where, you know, you have bookies handling, taking bets, those things, like Suhail said, just make bidding legal, collect 5% tax from the people. That way the government gets some money, all right? And that money can be used to keep track of making sure that, you know, the betting infrastructure, because you got to provide, uh, you know, hotspots and stuff like that so that people can bet online to, to make sure that then the advantage that it will make India even more connected, make it legal in India. That's what I would say. But the big, big, big money where things could be settled, uh, that I believe is happening outside of India. That is why Dubai is so convenient. Also, Dubai is a sort of a controlled uh, you know, uh, atmosphere, uh, especially in these days of uh, pandemic, I, I completely agree with that. Although I was a little disappointed that if you have closed empty stadiums, India could have uh, hosted the complete IPL, but they didn't do it. That's fine. Be that as it may. Mm. But the, the, the impact of this whole thing is what I'm trying to bring out saying that, you know, the politicians are a winner. Cricketers are certainly not. And, and, and the Bollywood is sort of like kind of caught in between they can't say yes they can't say no i've pictured i've portrayed some described some real dis, you know situations i have i don't have any idea i've never met a bollywood actor or an actress in my life i've never talked to any cricketer who has played at a test level in my life it's all basically you know my imagination of how things were playing out so you are uh, so my request to both of you is each of you can give me two two reasons for reading the white book and the red book and, and after I answer this question, I hope I've answered your question, uh, Abhijit. Sure. Uh, Suhail, you go first. One so reason you, each to read white and red. So, as I said, my reasons are common to both. Number one, they are brilliant chroniclers of India's contextual realities, context to economics, context to politics, and context to sports. And what is more remarkable is that both the books, the lowest common denominator is where there is almost a confluence. It's like a sangam where people are coming together, whether it's politics, Bollywood, and they're shifting stands. Sometimes the politicians ka palla bhari hota hai, sometimes someone else. So what I love about uh, uh, both the books is that they're great chroniclers of India's trials and tribulations across verticals, be it politics, sport, Bollywood, everything. And right. industry. Yeah. And for me, the two biggest reasons are one being a financial ignoramus. It teaches me a lot in a very easy way about the yeah. way financial markets kind of work into criminality, Bollywood, glitz, glam and all of that, number one. And number two, for the historical reasons, because, you know, reading about uh, financial history is so boring. But then when it's chronicled to you as fiction, it makes it a lot more interesting. And then you can kind of connect it back so easily to uh, other stuff. But uh, Shri, uh, I think uh, we've had a very decent discussion out here. Uh, thank you, Suhail, for joining us. Thank, thank you, you so Shri. much. I hope Suhail didn't maul you too much and you're not feeling terribly oh, victimized and traumatized. No, not at, at all. In fact, I praised him. Yes. Of course you did. Of course you did. I'm just giving him, I'm just goading him a bit. So thank you, audience. 
Do tune back into P Gurus every now and then for some fantastic discussions. And please hit like, share, subscribe. Vail, Vail, Vetri Vail. Thanks for coming on P Gurus. <laughs> Thank you very much, Suhail. Thank you so much. <coughs> and both the books are available on Amazon. You can go to Amazon.in or Amazon.com if you're not in India to get the books. And thanks once again for your support. And it's a pleasure expressing and sharing my thoughts on why I wrote these two books. A third book is in the works. It's going to come out very shortly. I'll share all the details as soon as I have them ready. Thank you once again. Namaskar. Namaskar. Namaskar.